kid because I did live not far from the Thames, Battersea, there were always people drowning in it. You know, they were just people getting drunk and going for a bit of a swim or there was odd little boats moored out. There was always somebody, some terrible thing. Until you take a boat on the Thames yourself, you've got no idea about the strength of the, what the currents are, the tide. I mean, it really is incredibly strong, you know, and you can be swept away. It's a dangerous river. All water is dangerous. It just is. It was literally the call of the sea, really. I mean, my wife Shane and I, we started after I was ill. Um, I was seriously ill kind of 25 years ago. And during my treatment and science, I just kept thinking about boats and I don't know why, I'm, you know, I'm from Battersea, you know, I don't think there's no, as far as I know, there's no seafaring lineage in my family, but I just started thinking about boats and then we, I said to Shane, you know, we're going to get two things if, if and when I get better, we're going to get a Rolls Royce and we're going to get a boat. Anyway, it was a, it was a mad notion, but we got a little narrow boat. And to cut a long story short, we then had a narrowboat built and then we um, did a lot of the inland waterway. And in that process, I started to get the call of the sea. And I said to my wife, Shane, I said, um, I'd like to get a, you know, a ocean going boat, sea going boat. Uh, and then we got the boat uh, with the intention of just poodling up and down the inland waterways, Thames mainly. And then we were going to go down and possibly um, employ a uh, pilot to take across the channel and then investigate the French canal system. But something went wrong down um, the end of the estuary and uh, we ended up staying down on the Medway. We didn't, we did encounter the actually the lifeboat crew down there at Chiernes. They were great. They sorted us out. We went, actually went in there because we broke down and we're going round and around in a circle and nearly uh, hooked up uh, the boat onto the uh, the uh, USS Montgomery, which is the biggest unexploded bomb in Europe. Uh, luckily, we didn't. The The boat was new, and so uh, there was a teething problem with the uh, with the rudder. Something had come loose, so it got fixed, so we were going round and round in a circle, and I really didn't know what to do, because it's too deep to drop the anchor down there, and I, I, uh, I came out. Um, I've actually been gone down there with just a list of boys, you know, just out to get into the medway. Not, I, I mean, it's it's mad when I think of it, you know, when I unprepared I was, didn't have a radio, um, and I just stood up and saw a, a boat coming out of the channel, and I waved it down, and a pilot boat came in, and said, "Oh, hello, Timothy." <laughs> hello, he said. I said. I said, we need help. He said, yeah, that is the international sign for distress. I said, I'm all right, <laughs> we are in distress. So we, he said, what, what are you doing? I said, we're trying to get into the, into the Medway. And this pilot, but he said, all right, we'll take you in. Um, and he just pulled up, jumped out of the way, boom, and he breasted us up and took us into the, ah, uh, what's it called? The Camber, I think it's called, which is where Sheerness lifeboat is just as you on the mouth of these you go into the medway off the Thames, top of the Thames estuary there and we went in there and we it, and it was you know we, it was quite distressing traumatic actually and then we were in there thinking what the hell are we doing I and mean, we were bashing around all over the place there were big tankers coming in and out the estuary and we were going up and down and 
Shane, my wife, always says, well, you know, you know, she always says the same thing. If you've run aground or whatever, or we're in property, so I'll put the potatoes on. <laughs> so Shane put the potatoes on and we <laughs> get the dinner ready. And then the following morning, I just toddled over to the um, office, uh, found the RNLI. I didn't even know they were there, actually. And they escorted us down to where we could, the point where we could pick up the boys. And then their kind, quiet help got us on our way. Um, got us out of that place and we weren't in the way of anybody else and there was no you know it was so I thought this is a great great experience you know and I didn't uh, experience them again five years later I didn't call them ever out again or whatever called them then they just happened to help I mean when we came back after our circumnavigation where I was thought I'd become really experienced and I'd come down the North Sea across the Irish Sea gone right up the Irish Sea and, you know, been round um, the Lizard, round the Land's End, through the Menai Straits, done all these, worked all the tides out, all this complicated things. A big sign at the Menai Straits when you get the end of it saying, um, this is the most dangerous piece of water I've ever encountered, Admiral Ormblower Nelson. Uh, a big sign as you come out of it. So then we come down the whole North Sea, down that side, back to the Medway, and I thought I was you know, plain sailing back to where we'd started. And um, uh, this night came in, I was exhausted, gone a bit nuts with, uh, and I got lost and completely lost all these lights and big uh, cargo boats behind us. And um, I tried to struggle to find where I was. And in the end, we called the lifeboat again. And there we met um, the, the small boat, the inflatable came out and found us. Uh, calmed us down and put us on a pontoon and uh, sorted us out again. So, I mean, it's it's funny, you know, and again, no judgment. You know, I keep saying it, they're there uh, when you need them. Well, what I've always been struck by whenever we've encountered them is how non-judgmental they are, for a start, how unprescriptive they are, unless they really think you've you, you could do with advice. They're just there and they make it uh, known to you that they're there and that they are, they help you and you invariably don't even have to ask them. Um, they'll, you know, anything you ask them, they'll answer. But they are just invariably like a wonderful group of men and women who are, you know, dedicated to being there for others I mean, it's a brilliant thing. I mean, and every time I've encountered them, I always find this wonderful mixture of amiability, approachability, and, um, and, uh, and a great sense of security to know that they're there, you know, always. And, um, and I'll show you, it's obvious that they're so well organized and so well trained, you know. I just think this quiet, um, you know, undemonstrative, they're very undemonstrative about what they do. You know, which is always fantastic because it's not like, you know, they're not broadcasting what they do. They just do it and they just do it quietly and with expertise and uh, with, with great charm invariably. I mean, when you think of it, what, there's no, there's no price. I mean, obviously it costs money and there's a structure and it has, you have to, you know, so many good people are raising constantly. It's always a struggle to raise money. But the price tag that... It's never advertised to the 
to the uh, people who use it. It's almost like you, akin to the sort of the church, really. It's there. You can go in it when you want it and sit there. Nobody's asking you to pay to go in there and sit and you can talk to a vicar. It doesn't cost you anything. It's a bit like that. The, the, the fact that, you know, the, this charity and people have an intention to work because they feel a desire to do something that helps others. I mean, that is in its simple form, you know, without being too romantic, it's a, it's a form of practical, you know, non-romantic, unromantic love, isn't it? But when you think of it, what an amazingly positive thing that is. And what an amazing power that is. You know, it's, you know, it's humanity incarnate, is it not? And the other wonderful thing about this is that there's no judgment. You know, um, and you soon learn. You learn quick, particularly when you're learning on your job. You haven't done any courses. You've got to learn quick. But nobody ever told me off. Nobody said you shouldn't be doing that. I remember when we were down in um, Cornwall. Um, we got to Cornwall, and uh, I met the crew down there, and we chatted. They were great, and they were they were really nice guys, a lot of fun as well. And we were chatting, and nobody said, you know that's not the sort of boat you should have down here, you know. And I I talked to them, I said to them, you know, you know, we're going to go around Land's End soon, a bit scared, you know. Um, and uh, and they didn't say anything. They didn't say, well, I wouldn't do it. And then about a couple of days later, I was walking along and I bumped into the Cox and Patch. And he said, he said, I've been looking at that old boat of yours there. I think you'll be all right. This reassurance, this non-judgmental reassurance, Really, if you wanted to, I wouldn't advise it, and I think it would be very irresponsible. You could try and, you know, paddle across the English Channel on a plank with a baguette. It's not illegal. And if you happened to get out there and get into trouble, the RNI would come and get you. And they wouldn't shout at you. They'd say, I wouldn't try that again if I, you know, or you might think about not doing that. We've had a few scrapes, but the amount of professional skippers I've met who have confessed to me because after seeing our program that they've made mistakes and everybody makes mistakes and that you, you know, all of the weather apps which are brilliant about telling you what might happen in the uh, weather are getting better and better, but you still get caught. And there's the weather apps, but then the tidal, uh, you know, um, uh, reach and the tidal power around, particularly around the UK, is so strong that even on a flat, calm day, you know, if you haven't checked your charts right, you can come across an overfall where it can go from as flat as that to 50-foot waves very quickly, or 20, you know, and you can find yourself seriously in trouble because you've slightly gone off course, you know, and then, you know, you've always got that button to press or you've always got a radio to say, excuse me, um, I think I might need help, and they'll come. We must really accentuate the positives, particularly in our this country that still has great quality, you know, which is a free national health service, free emergency service, and excellent people are doing it, and in the RNLI's case, voluntarily. I mean, this is one of the great things that we must celebrate and back and uh, and fund, uh, you know, and help. They are fantastic. RNLI is a fantastic organisation. You know, um, not to say that professionals aren't as dedicated, but maybe it is because it's, and it's not something you, you know, it's not a contract, apart from a contract from your own heart, is it, really? But it's also, you wouldn't, 
do it unless you had a real sense of your shared humanity and what it is, what you get, what people get out of being saved and what you can get out of giving. It's a reciprocity, is it not, you know? And you voluntarily choose to accept the, the discipline of what that is, the training. Uh, and I would imagine anybody with a, with a, um, a rose-tinted view of what it takes to, to be an RL and I member will soon find out that there are things you've got to learn and adhere to and a strength, a strong structure of what, you know, safety and what it takes to be in a team in a, in a treacherous situation to go and help people. You've only got to see the programs to see how well organised and how well trained and how, um, you know, uh, specific that training is because it's, it's like 200 years of it, of experience has taught them what is required. And, you know, there's no point in killing yourselves if you're not going to, you know, to kill. So there's all that, you know, although there have been, as we know, tragic and appalling um, appallingly sad instances where lifeboat crews have taken risks uh, and knowing that they're risking their own lives to save people and have perished in that process. You know. However, you know, careful you are on boating, whatever you do, the sea is a dangerous element. It does what it wants, when it wants, it makes up its own mind. I've been involved in trying to get a, a project um, off the ground about the Penley lifeboat uh, disaster. Um, there's been various attempts to get that made. Um, it would be an incredibly amazing, dramatic story to tell. There's all sorts of reasons why it, it's not been made, I presume, I don't know, but it's a tale that could be told in, in a TV series or a, or a film. I mean, it's just about in honor of what, you know, of one of the practicality, what it is, what people do, the consequences, the lives that go with this people. Because, you know, you've got the crew and then you've got their family, you've got the people who love them. Every time somebody goes out on a shout when the weather's bad, they're risking their lives, but they're also, you know, there's a whole network of people around them that support them and love them and are part of the family of the RLI that are, you know, have a stake in this, you know. So it's a, it's a it's, you know, we, we, we must remember that. It's not just the crew, it's the families and the people around them that uh, support them and, you know, support the RNLI. They're there for you. They are, they are people who volunteer for you to make sure you, to do everything they can in their power to stop you dying or being hurt at sea. Hello, this is Jim Moyer and you've been listening to the RNLI's 200 Voices Collection. To hear more remarkable stories, head to rnli.org slash 200 voices or subscribe to RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. 200 Voices is an adventurous audio limited production for the RNLI.